Hey everybody, this is Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm Kira, and how's everybody doing out there? I, for one, am having a doozy of a week. Doozy of a year, really, and that is an understatement. <laughs> I don't want to bog you down with details, but I can tell you one thing that always cheers me up is Halloween. It's my favorite holiday, in case you didn't know, and I can't wait for fall this year and for the Halloween season. Halloween is mostly fun and games, costumes, parties, handing out candy, watching scary movies, baking treats. I love it all. But sometimes there are more sinister things that happen in connection to Halloween. And that's what we are going to be talking about today, because H is for Halloween. I'm going to tell you guys about the case of Jake Evans, a 17-year-old boy who took inspiration from the remake of a classic horror film. And Cindy Song, a Penn State student who disappeared on Halloween night in 2001. Let's get started. I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about when I mention the movie Halloween the John Carpenter film about a boy named Michael Myers who kills his older sister, Judith, on Halloween night in 1963. He then comes back for his younger sister, Lori, on Halloween 15 years later after escaping custody. It's one of my all-time favorite movies ever made, a favorite franchise. It's a movie I grew up watching every year, multiple times a year with my mom, um, along with the rest of the Halloween movies. It's one of her favorite movies and ultimately had a role to play in who I am today as far as my love of horror goes. The original Halloween was released in 1978, and in 2007, a Rob Zombie remake came out. In this version, Rob Zombie focuses a lot more on the childhood of Michael Myers, a lot more than the original did, and it showed Michael in a more sympathetic light. This Rob Zombie installation of Halloween is what inspired 17-year-old Jake Evans to murder his family. It was October 3rd, 2012, and Jake was watching this movie. It was the third time that week that he had watched it. Jake is described as a quiet teenager who stayed out of trouble. Both he and his younger sister Mallory had withdrawn from their schools and were being homeschooled. Their mother, Jamie Evans, 48 at this time, had worked as an assistant principal and a first grade teacher until 2004. I couldn't find exactly what his father did for a living, but at the time that this case takes place, uh, he was out of town in Washington, D.C. on business. He also had two older sisters that were no longer living at home. This home was a $500,000 home in an upscale gated community in Aledo, Texas. It was here that Jake was watching Halloween on October 3rd after getting home from an allergist. In later confessions, he describes how amazed he was at the ease at which the 12-year-old boy in the film killed and how little remorse he seemed to feel. Jake thought to himself, that's what it would be like when I kill someone. Jake was becoming frustrated with his family and said that he was sad because they were turning into the kind of people that he hated bullies and full of themselves. He said that he was amazed how common those qualities were in people, 
According to Jake, he had gotten into an argument with his 15-year-old sister that day after she had said a comment that he thought was racist. I don't know exactly what she said, but it struck him this way and they got into an argument. His plan was to kill his mom and his sister and then go across the street and kill his grandparents and his older sister, Emily, who was visiting their grandparents at the time. After watching the movie, he took it out, put it back into its case, and threw it away. He didn't want anyone to think that the movie had influenced him in any way uh, to do what he did. He then went outside to hit golf balls in the yard for about an hour before coming back inside. He asked his sister Mallory if she wanted to watch Waterboy with him, and while watching TV, he got up and went downstairs to the art room where he got his dad's knife and started pacing for a little while, imagining killing her again. He returned with a knife in his pocket. Jake said, I sat for about five minutes, then playfully threw a pillow at Mallory. We started having a pillow fight in the room. After a while, I thought to myself that if I was going to kill my mom and Mallory, I wouldn't want them to feel anything so I decided to kill them both with a twenty-two revolver I stole from my grandpa." End quote. His grandpa was a retired Fort Worth officer, so um, I guess that makes sense why he knew he had guns and, you know, why his grandpa had guns, um, but just a little backstory on that. He says he spent over an hour walking nervously around the house, thinking about how his life would never be the same and how he would never see his family members again. And around 11.15, he went upstairs and stood there with a pistol for about five minutes. He knocked on the door and told Mallory that their mother needed her. She came out and saw him pointing the gun at her. Jake says that she thought it was a joke at first and told him, You're freaking me out. And then he shot her in the back and then in the head. And I think he shot her in the back because I think maybe she tried to get away. There's a part of him... Uh, calling 911 where he says that she kind of like rolled down the stairs. They somehow ended up from upstairs to downstairs, but we'll get to that in a little bit. He then ran down to the study and he shot his mom three times. This is what Jake said about what happened next. Quote, In shock, I ran to my room and was screaming at the top of my lungs that I'm really messed up and that I killed my mom and sister. End quote. Jake then emptied the shells onto his bed. He heard noises and realized that Mallory was still alive. He loaded the gun back up, all while shouting that he was sorry. He ran to where she was laying and shot her again. He then went back to Jamie, his mom, and shot her in the head, making sure that she was dead. Jake then went to the kitchen, laid the gun down on the counter, and dialed 911. And I'm going to read you some of what was in that call. Parker County 911, what's your emergency? Uh, my house. What's the emergency? I just killed my mom and sister. What? How did you do that? Uh, I shot them with a 22 revolver. Are you sure they're dead? They're dead. Okay, I want you to stay on the phone with me. Are you alright? Yeah, I'm alright. The gun is on the kitchen counter. Jake, are you on any medication? Uh, no. I've been going to the allergist. I'm on allergy medication. Others in Zyrtec and Advil and Sudafedrin, I don't take anything else. Is there any reason that you were so angry at your mother and your sister? I don't know. It's weird. I wasn't even really angry with them. I just, it just kind of happened. I've been kind of, uh, planning on, uh, killing for a while now. The two of them or just anybody? Pretty much anybody. 
Why? I don't know. I don't really like uh, people's uh, attitude. I think it's kind of very, like, you know, emotional. They're verbally rude to each other and stuff like that. I don't know. It's just my family is kind of really, I guess, this is really selfish to say, but I felt they were just suffocating me in a way. I don't know. I'm pretty, I guess, evil, whatever. I'm sorry. Were your mom and sister in their beds? I don't know. This is going to really mess me up in the future. I told my sister that my mom needed her. She was in her room, and she came out of her room, and I shot her. And she rolled down the stairs, and I shot her again. And then I went down and shot my mom maybe three or four times, but I'll never forget this. My sister, she came downstairs, and she was screaming, and I was telling her, I'm sorry, but just to hold still, that, you know, I was going to make it go away. But she kept on freaking out. But she finally fell down, and I shot her in the head about probably three or four times. Are you in the kitchen? Yes. Where's your dad? He's out of town, Washington, D.C., and uh, I guess for future reference, I don't really want to see any of my family members, like visiting or whatever. I just don't want any type of visitors. You don't want to hurt yourself, do you? Just to let you know, I hate the feeling of killing someone. I'm going to be messed up. You just take a deep breath. We have deputies coming, and they're going to help you. Just to let you know, we're going to help you. We're not going to hurt you. I was thinking of my sister. She was 15. How long ago did the shootings happen? About uh, 30 minutes ago. Uh, Jake then starts breathing pretty heavily. The operator is calming him down. Um, they discuss certain things like where the gun is at. Uh, Jake questions about medications he might be able to take. And then the operator instructs him to stay on the phone until the police arrive. And when they get there, to walk out with his hands visible very slowly and to make sure that he doesn't hide himself behind anything. The police arrest him. They also find the bodies in the house and he's charged with capital murder. He was held on $750,000 bond. While in custody, Jake writes a four-page confession detailing that night. Jake's lawyers object to the confession being released to the public, which the judge had ruled in favor of, in fear that it would influence uh, the jury. They had the same concern about the 911 tape. His lawyer said, quote, They may or may not get into evidence at the time of the trial, but you certainly don't want the jurors seeing stuff like that before you ever get a chance to talk to them or impanel them or tell them you don't consider stuff like that until you see it at the time that it's introduced. End quote. In 2015, Jake Evans went to trial. He pled guilty to two counts of murder. As part of his plea, the capital murder charge was waived. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison and would only be eligible for parole after serving half of his sentence and the two years that he had spent in jail or the state mental hospital while awaiting trial would be counted as credit towards his sentence. His family supported this and didn't want him or the family to go through a capital murder trial and just wanted what was best for everyone and to go on healing as a family. In Jake's confession, he wrote, quote, I know now, though, that I'm done with killing. It's the most dreadful and terrifying thing I will ever experience, and what happened last night will haunt me forever, end quote. Now I'm going to tell you about the case of Cindy Song. Hyung Jong Song, who went by the nickname Cindy, grew up in South Korea. 
1995, at the age of 15, she moved to Virginia to live with her aunt and uncle and attend high school. After high school, she started college at Pennsylvania State University, and in 2001, when this case takes place, she was on track to graduate within a few months. On October 31st, 2001, she went out with some friends for Halloween. Her costume was a bunny. She wore bunny ears, a pink tank top, and a white tennis skirt, and tall brown boots. They went to a Halloween party that the popular college spot Players Nightclub was hosting that night, and her and her friends danced and had some drinks and had fun until around 2 a.m. that night. Cindy and her friends then left the club and went back to a friend's house to play video games. After this, around 4 a.m., Cindy's friend dropped her off outside of her apartment. And this is the last time anyone has ever seen Cindy. Cindy didn't show up to one of her part-time jobs, and her friends couldn't get a hold of her on the phone. They were beginning to worry, and about three days after she was dropped off at her apartment, her friends called the police. There were no signs of struggle or forced entry to her apartment. Her backpack, cell phone, and false eyelashes she had worn that night were all there. The only things missing were her purse and her. Police think she was still wearing her costume at the time she vanished, since that also wasn't there. An analysis of her phone found that she had not made or received any calls after she was dropped off. There were also no activity on her credit cards. And finally, there was no suspicious activity on her emails. Police and volunteers searched a wooded area near the campus, but no trace of her was found. Authorities don't believe that she ran off on her own. Um, there were two Britney Spears concert tickets that were found in her apartment, a printout for a computer that was due to be received on November 6th, and her friends and family don't believe that she was the type of person to just disappear. They also didn't believe that she was depressed or suicidal. Her friends remembered that she was happy and upbeat on the night that she had vanished. And there was the argument that she could have run off on her own because uh, she had recently went through a breakup with her boyfriend, but her friends all said that she was handling it pretty well and it was all pretty normal and there were no signs of her like wanting to run off or disappear or do anything rash, so they ended up ruling that out. It's speculated that Cindy had ducked out to run to a nearby 24-hour store and not planning to be gone too long and it being the middle of the night that she had left her phone behind. And I mean, if you've ever been out like for a while that night, like running around having fun, either like maybe her phone was dead and she left it there to charge or just thought she didn't need it or, I mean, I've forgotten my phone at home just running out to go do something. So, um... She maybe purposefully left it there, or she might have just forgotten it. But it's thought that maybe she was abducted somewhere along the way to the 24-hour store, because this was a trip that she made pretty frequently, either at night or early in the morning, and it was um, like across a road, like a couple blocks from her house, so it wasn't, it wasn't weird for her to make this trip to this 24-hour store. The police received a tip of an unidentified man who was seen trying to force a woman matching Cindy's description into a car. She was screaming and crying for help, and he yelled at the witness, the person trying to shove her in the car, to leave, so the witness left. And 
The incident occurred in Philadelphia's Chinatown district, about 200 miles from her apartment. He was wanted for questioning, and the description was of an Asian male with medium-length hair, but he has never been identified, and they ended up dropping this lead after the person who gave them the tip couldn't really keep their story straight. It kept changing multiple times, and they never could find the suspect matching the description. Cindy's family flew in from South Korea to help search for her, and they also ended up cleaning out Cindy's apartment, which the investigators weren't too happy about because this basically contaminated the chance for investigators to go back and search for any more evidence. The family formed an action group with Penn State students and various community groups, and three months after Cindy's disappearance on January 31st, a press conference was held. The police department was criticized for not doing enough to find Cindy, and it ended up being compared to a case of a 13-year-old white female that had gone missing on New Year's Day, and that had like 50 agents had been tasked to find her, while in Cindy's case only had, there was only like a team of six state police, even after being pressured by Penn State uh, Black Caucus and the Korean Undergraduate Students Association. And in 2003, the case had a pretty big breakthrough. A police informant claimed that career criminal Hugo Selinski murdered Cindy with the help of Michael Krakowski, a pharmacist who also ran an illegal drug ring. A co-defendant of Selinski's told police that he and an accomplice, Michael Krakowski, had abducted a woman matching Cindy's description, claiming that they captured her locked her in a vault, assaulted her a number of times, and left her there to die. After searching Selinski's property, the charred remains of about five bodies were found in his backyard, and DNA testing proved that none of these were Cindy, but one of the bodies was his accomplice, Krakowski. The informant, Paul Weekly, claimed that she was buried on another part of the property, And authorities believe the informant is telling the truth because his information on the other five cases turned out to be correct. Selinski also confessed to kidnapping Cindy, but claimed that Krakowski had killed her and kept her bunny ears as a souvenir. Surprisingly, in 2006, Selinski was acquitted of the murder of two drug dealers whose bodies were found in his property. Weird. And there was the question of how would he have known about her wearing bunny ears, but by the time that this was happening, it was a pretty well-publicized case, and it was pretty, it was also pretty publicized, like, what she was wearing that night, and that the fact that she had bunny ears on, because it was a key uh, element in trying to find her, so he probably, he could have just said that, like drawing that from the media, or, you know, maybe he does know something. In 2014, authorities announced that the badly destroyed remains of at least seven other people were found on Selinski's property. They have looked into the possibility that one of the sets of remains belongs to Sydney. They also announced that Selinski's attorney and a private investigator were involved in witness intimidation and other crimes relating to Selinski's case. And in 2015, Selinski was convicted of the murders of Krakowski and his girlfriend, Tammy Fassett, who were also found on his property. 
He was sentenced to life in prison and is still considered a suspect in Cindy's case. However, her body has still never been found. And those are our cases this week, both extremely tragic. Hopefully the Evans family continues to heal, and hopefully Cindy's family will get justice one day. As always, head over to the Instagram for pictures, or if you want to drop me a line. And thanks for listening, and I hope you guys have a really great week, and I'll see you next time.